we go to these like sponsor events and we're wearing a suit and uh, we walk into this building and, and they ask us to take our shoes off and they but they I, I wear size 17 shoe and he wears like size 15 or whatever and then they give us these tiny slippers like these oh. super tiny slippers so we we take our we take our dress shoes our nice dress shoes off at the front door and then they give us these like si- I can't even explain to you they're probably size 8 slippers that we have to walk in and we go to like this sponsor meeting where it's super respectful like everyone is like sitting down and these these um, Japanese women are coming in in like a full like get up like full nice like gown and like serving us coffee and tea and crackers on their knees like shuffling things around like super like uh just traditional and like fancy and and you could always i tell you what you could always point out the americans in japan at dinners because they don't have the hip flexibility that japanese people have so you see us there like holding our knees like trying to like lean against a wall or something because like and then the japanese are just sitting there cross-legged like super happy for hours Another season in the books, the podcast featuring professional athletes who have taken their careers overseas. We'll hear about their seasons, come and gone, the process, their struggles, and what it's been like living and playing overseas. We'll also talk academics and the differences between the European and the American systems. I'm your host, Leslie Knight, 12-year veteran in Europe's professional basketball leagues. Let's get to it. Near Champaign, Illinois, there's a small town of less than 10,000 called Muhammad. Growing up in small town USA, Nick Washburn played multiple sports, basketball, hockey, and American football. However, after many hours spent in the driveway with his dad, and after growing into a six foot 10 inch frame, Nick decided basketball was his passion. He accepted a full ride scholarship to a small private school in Michigan. He started all four years as a Charger and signed his first professional contract seven years ago to play in Spain. That being said, Nick's had to overcome obstacles along the way, from not making the ninth grade A team to recovering from thoracic outlet syndrome, having his first rib removed, and having to learn how to walk again. Joining us from Oviedo, Spain, here he is. Well, hey, Nick, how's it going? It's going pretty well, you know, just living the, the quarantine life in Spain and uh, taking taking things day by day, really. Yeah, well, your situation is a little different and interesting because I followed you on Twitter today and I see that your wife is pregnant. She and is. so that must be kind of, I don't know, a ball of emotions for her too, being in a different country. I don't know when she's due, but that's got to be a little, like I said, different. It, this year's been a roller coaster, to say the least, uh, from everywhere we've been, everywhere we've traveled, and uh, realistically, like coming to Oviedo and here in Spain was, you know, something that was, was a big jump, a big risk for us. We traveled when she was 24 weeks pregnant. And, uh, like with twins, they, they say, and like some doctors say like 24 weeks is probably like the cutoff. So we were traveling and taking this long trip. I think our trip was like 34 hours or something of traveling Mm -hmm. while she was 24 weeks pregnant. But it was something that like, we really felt like we needed to do. It was like a next step for us, um, Mm -hmm. like basketball wise. 
and uh, we made the trip and everything. And, and I tell you what, like the team in Oviedo has made us more than comfortable here. We've been like as crazy as everything's been going on. They've been like right next to us, like helping us along the way. So to answer your question, she's been she's been great in the whole process, uh, you know, in, in as, as great as you can be. I mean, giving birth in a foreign country and, and things like that. But I try to is help that, her out, like, speak some Spanish and stuff. So is that on the schedule? Like, is she is that probably going to happen? It is. So she is 34 weeks pregnant uh, now. And so we don't really know when. But probably, I mean, we're thinking hopefully like two to three weeks. So. Wow. Okay. Well, she's a champ, man. I don't know her, but hey, I'm I'm cheering for her. I tell you what, she is. Uh, she definitely is is a champ, and she she's been so like she's been my rock through this whole thing, and she's the one pregnant, you know. So she's just been <laughs> like so strong and so just man, she's been awesome. So okay, that's great. Um, well, I was actually thinking about you today because. You know, I set up my little workout set here in the in the living room and I've got a couple dumbbells and a kettlebell and like a fitness ball. But when I lift the dumbbell up to the ceiling, like I'm getting kind of close, like I'm not going to hit the ceiling, but I could hit the light maybe. And I was just thinking, how does someone who's six foot ten work out at home without hitting the couch, hitting the ceiling, hitting a light? Because your your wingspan is probably longer than, than six foot 10. Mm-hmm. So I have like a seven foot two wingspan. Oh my goodness. So that's what's helped me. Cause I mean, I mean, I don't play super above the rim. So my wingspan kind of <laughs> helps me. Um, but working on at home, it's been, it's been an adventure for sure. Uh, you know, in the first couple of days in the quarantine, I tried to get outside and run, but then as you know, in Spain, they said, no, you can't get outside to run. So I was like, man, I got to get my heart rate up. So I've been doing, I don't know if you remember, like it back in the day, the insanity workouts. Mm, I like, never did them, yeah. but I've heard of them. Crazy. So like just something to like get my heart rate up, like doing a lot of push-ups and, and things like that. We have a uh, team workout, like Zoom calls that oh. we do like mobility and like our trainer puts them on here and our, like our physical weight room guy. And he uh, makes sure like we're using our calves a lot and like mobility and stuff Mm. because things that we like normally suffer from, from sitting around or being around home and stuff. So that's been, that's been great as well. But yeah, I, I'm not lifting things above my head (laughs) because I will definitely like hit the, hit the ceiling, but also like OVO has been great. They gave us like a huge, like kettle ball, our kettlebell and like a a stationary bike and stuff to make sure we stay fit because like yeah. our league is still suspended. No one knows what's going to happen. So. I know. And if they were to say all of a sudden, yeah, we're getting going again. It's like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, they it, sent it, us a, a PDF file the other day of what it would look like going back to practice. I don't know if you saw that as well, but they were talking about how no high fives, no hugging, sitting in individual chairs, not on a bench, washing your hands before practice, after practice. I'm like, okay, so obviously the first week of practice would just be you with your individual ball. Like nobody would be passing to you because if someone passes it to you, that's the same thing as giving a high five basically. Um, but it was just so interesting. I'm like, wow, this this is really something. It see, We had that speech right before. So it was Friday we practiced. We were supposed to have a game. We practiced Friday and then we, they sat us down and we had a doctor come in and talk to us. And he's like, all right, so now if you use your own towel, excuse me, he's like, if you, if you high five before, like you can't high five now. 
and stuff like that. And we're all sitting there like, well, if you're playing with one basketball, like it's going to happen. Like it's in basketball and, and, and realistically in any sport, like it's going to happen. You're going to spread. It's just like the, the, the nature of the sport. And I, I don't know. I, 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 I didn't see that, but we had that talk and it, it's for me, it's impossible. I don't, I don't know. Right. Like, but yeah. Like how do you play post defense without just bodying up to your, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And thinking like, they're like, well, you can't wipe like your sweat on your on your shirt, like you know, because then if you like come in contact with someone else, I was like, I mean, come on, if you're gonna sit here and think about all these things, then you're not even playing basketball. So it's yeah, yeah. Well, we are living something very unique. Um, but getting into the interview a little bit, uh, tell us about your first sports memory. Uh, doesn't have to be basketball. Just the first thing that you, the little glimmer of you know whatever you remember. So my first sports memory, I'd have to say, I grew up, my first love was hockey, to be honest. My, uh, I don't know how it happened, but in central <laughs> Illinois, uh, I loved hockey first. I was a goalie. I could skate really well. And that's just what I love to do. I just love the smell of the rink. I love being in there. It's just what my friends did. It, I loved it. But like, as, as I grew older, my, my moments that I cherish a lot is kind of like, being like late outside and going outside and me and my dad just playing basketball like that was like my favorite thing because mm-hmm. he you know he loved playing basketball and he was really like he played college basketball and just him teaching me stuff and just that time we spent together was was really special that's probably one of my favorite memories mm-hmm. so obviously you grew up in a sports oriented family yes very uh my dad my sister was was a gymnast um so she she did some sports, but she she lacked somewhat of the coordination, and she'll tell you, yeah. So she, how tall is your sister? My sister is probably five ten. Oh, okay. So she's yeah. tall. She yeah, she's she's very tall. She's like kind of she's like lanky, you know. So she was tall for a gymnast. And right. Yeah, she had some like wrist problems because of her height and because of like, but she was really good and she was very talented. And you know, wow. my dad was an athlete and. My mom was more of a cheerleading type, but, you know, we, we, everything was based around sports in our household. Mm-hmm. So you started basketball, I'm assuming at a pretty young age, if you were already out in the driveway with your dad. Yeah. I, so I'd say I, like third grade is probably when I started playing third, fourth grade. Mm-hmm. When do you think you started taking a little bit more seriously? So... After, like, I kind of fell out of love with hockey a little bit. Some things happened. Um, I kind of just, I kind of got, I got bigger a little bit. And uh, I don't know. I just, I just really started falling in love with basketball. And I'd say, I, t- I didn't take it seriously, seriously, probably until seventh, eighth grade. Because I love football. So I, play, I played American football and I, you know, I just, I loved it. So I, would, I was like, that was my first love. And then, man. It just it just branched out from there, and I kept you, going. I was like, basketball's gonna wait, be the way to go. Did you grow up in a small town? Very, I wouldn't say very small town. I didn't, Minnesota knows the small towns, but I grew up in a town outside of Champaign, Illinois, called Muhammad. And when I grew up, there was like one stoplight in the whole town, so it was very small. I, my high school is is mixed between all these cornfields, and and everybody knows everybody, and it. It's it's crazy, you know, because that's what that's the kind of made the person who I am. But when you come overseas, you you don't tell people you're from 
Muhammad in a sense. You're like, I pretty much tell people, I'm like, oh, I'm from Chicago, you know, because like <laughs> Illinois. Just a little different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, Illinois. And they're like, Illinois, I don't, I don't know that. And I'm like, oh, you know, Chicago, right? Okay, hop in a car and head just like two and a half hours south of there, just the middle of cornfields. That's funny. I know. I tell people that I'm from Minnesota, and I don't know if it's my accent or what, but they automatically think I'm saying Venezuela <laughs> without <laughs> without hesitation. I mean, it's probably happened to me more than 10 times. And I just kind of look at them like, no, Minnesota. You know, I, I just don't think they've ever heard of Minnesota. So the first thing that comes to their mind is Venezuela. But I'm like, do I look like I'd be from Venezuela? I don't know. <laughs> That's that's new. I've never heard that. That's yeah. Yeah. I actually Googled it and asked because I was like, this is happening way too many times and it, it's a common thing. So I'm not the only one. Wow. Yeah. Strange. Are you but, saying uh, Spanish or English? Um, usually, well, they'll ask me in Spanish, like, de donde eres? And I say, soy de Minnesota. And I don't know if it's the way I say it or what, but they just think I'm saying Venezuela. I don't know. Wow. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So then I have to say Minneapolis and then I say oh. Ricky Rubio, you know, Timberwolves. <laughs> oh yeah. That usually gets their attention. I'm like, Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, well, I was just curious if you were from a small town, because obviously if you were playing basketball, if you were playing football, you know, a lot of kids these days are dedicating themselves to one sport. And especially in Europe, um, I know you've played in a lot of different places but the club sports I mean it goes for a pretty long time during the year and I don't know of many kids that play multiple sports they pretty much all just play one have you noticed that I have and I think it's kind of a shame a little bit because I had so much fun playing other sports and a lot of the basketball players I, I play with like you said they they played it from a young age they were professional at a young age they were going to school they almost yeah they chose going to school or playing basketball over going to school at times mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like, man, you know, they, they might have played tennis a little bit in the street or like football or soccer in the in the streets and stuff. But it, it's it's kind of a shame because like that. I mean, some of my fondest memories are playing sports with the like just growing up. And I think it also helped me basketball wise, mm -hmm. you know, as you learn coordination, as you learn how to do how to play different sports, it kind of helps with the athleticism, hand eye coordination, all these things. Using other muscles, cross training, yep. different friends. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine my life without playing those those other sports because. Right. But in the States, I'd say it's becoming more and more that way, too. You know, people just dedicating themselves to one sport. So yeah. I guess really it's not that different from from Europe. But I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. And I hear a lot of like there's a lot of la like lashing back from coaches. Like some coaches are like, oh, you should just focus on basketball to get a scholarship. But if you look like a lot of the most elite athletes play more than one sport. Mm -hmm. And I think like narrowing, narrowing a kid down to one sport just like puts them in like a box, you know, like just let them have fun. And like if, if their future turns out to be something, you know, then I don't know. But Right. Right. Yeah. You said you were a Vikings fan before. Joe Maurer. Do you know who that is? I don't. He played for the Twins. He's a baseball player, but he okay. could have gone. He could have gone D one in uh, basketball and football. Mm -hmm. um, he played all three. But anyway, you could also argue that the people that play multiple sports, they're just that good, and so they were lucky enough to be able to to make it. You know, but yeah, that's a whole nother whole nother subject. So yeah, but they could have gotten that good by playing other sports. 
So yeah, you could always argue yeah, it from that I side know. too. Yeah, we'll never know. Yeah. Um, so then you're in seventh grade, eighth grade, you're taking basketball more seriously. Um, when you got into high school, when did the recruiting process start for you? So my basketball story is a little weird. It's a little complicated. So I, I never was like the top on my team. I'm, I'm from a small town. I, I fell in love with basketball late. I didn't grow. I ended up growing till way late. But my freshman year, I was actually on the B team. So, like, I didn't even play in the regular games. I wasn't even, like, thinking about JV or anything. I'd play after the real freshman game was over. They'd play, like, a half for the people that didn't play, and that was me. So I was, like, really kind of, like, defeated, but it made me work really hard at it. So, like, come sophomore year, I, I played a little bit more. I played a little bit more. Go ahead. Sorry. How tall were you in ninth grade? So I'm not 100% sure, but I but one thing I do know is – when I got my driver's license, I remember I was like 6'4", 175 maybe. But then like when I graduated high school, I was like 6'9", 220, 215. Wow. So like, I don't know if that's exact, but that's kind of how I remember it. I remember my driver's license being like way shorter when I was like yeah. six. So sophomore year, I played a little bit more. And then I just, I just kept working at it. You know, I fell in love with the game. That's where I really like found like my rhythm. I stopped playing football. Hmm. I focused more on like just basketball. And then junior year, I became a starter on varsity. And then, uh, and then that's when things started to come in. That's when I got into a, an AAU program out of Chicago and uh, really helped open a lot of doors for me. Mm-hmm. So you were 6'4", 174, whatever. So you weren't like crazy skinny. I mean, you were, you were thin, but you weren't like, you know, yeah. I, I think about my dad, my dad was six, six in his prime and I see pictures of him and I'm like, oh my gosh, dad, I would have boxed you out and I would have broken your femur. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was just, I was skinny. I was growing into my body. Okay. A little awkward, just kind of like figuring things out. And, and to be honest, like there was just players better than me. I can't say it was like the coach's problem or anything like that. Like there was just people better than me. So it, it really motivated me to work hard. I was shooting all the time. I was in the gym all the time. I just, I got that bug, you know, when you first start yeah. playing, it's just. You what about the weight room? Were you spending a lot of time in there? I was, you know, I was like trying to like hit the weights and, and doing all these things because I was still playing football at the time. Uh. Um, and then really, I just kind of like grew into my own body. We did workouts a lot. I spent a lot of time in basketball workouts. Any opportunity I could get when the weight room was open, I was in there. Mm -hmm. So when you first got your your first like scholarship offer, I mean, I don't know what it was like for you. Were you a junior, senior? Did you have a lot of options? How did you narrow it down? What was the deciding factor? Yeah. So um, I ended up. I ended up. So my I ended up playing uh, AAU basketball at a team out of Chicago. I was very lucky. My dad actually um, drove two hours twice a week to and from Chicago. So four hours in the car twice. A, or, yeah, four hours in a car over that twice, twice a, week. a week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful he did. You know, I played with great players. It's one of the like, most elite programs out of Chicago with Illinois Wolves. A lot of grades have come out of there, you know, Evan Turner and, and Demetri McKamey. And, and there's just like a, a, the list goes on and on if you look at it. And um, I was able to play with like the best talent and just open the doors and, and the AU circuit. Unfortunately, I was playing a lot. Ended up breaking my foot junior year. I uh, stress, uh, had a stress fracture 
and I ended up pushing through it. You know, I was like, oh, I'm not hurt. I went to a bunch of elite camps and I was like, this is really important to me. I want to play college basketball. This is the only way I know how. So I'd have my dad tape it super tight right before every camp. And I would just go out there and I would hobble so bad. And, but when we go to these elite camps as a team or, or me individually, and coaches would look at me and be like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I'm just so happy to be here. My foot hurts a little bit, you know, and, and eventually I'd find out that it was broken. And, you know, I had to put in a cast and then all of a sudden the phone calls, you know, kind of stopped coming in. Like a lot of schools turned away because like if you have a small injury, they're like, oh, he's injury prone. If he's going to get this hurt at 16, 17, what's going to happen when he's 20? We can't invest all this money. What a scholarship essentially is in a player that tends to be injury prone. So I'm like, man, this is a bummer. You know, a lot of the mid-majors kind of fell off. Some kind of hung around. And then a lot of Division II offers were coming in. And before I started my senior year, my parents kind of encouraged me. They're like, hey, you know, you should probably commit because it's going to just take a load off, like a load off your shoulders. You're going to just be able to enjoy your senior year. You're going to be able to join basketball. And I was like, you know, like you guys are right. So I had like two Division II offers on the table. I had a mid-major in, in Southern Illinois, uh, Edwardsville, and I was I was really thinking about it, and I was like, man, you know, I went to I went to Hillsdale College, and the coaching staff there made me feel important, and they they pitched to me, and they're like, Nick, you're gonna come in, you're gonna be a four-year starter, and you're gonna make an impact in this program. We love you, we love your family, be a part of our family, and it just felt right. Mm-hmm. So I called, I ended up calling Hillsdale right before my, uh, right around that time, my senior year. And I told him, I was like, I'd like to commit and play um, for Hillsdale. And what's crazy about it is, is when I ended up calling the other coaches that have offered me, th- they were the first ones to quick and turn and talk bad about Hillsdale. So it was like, what you don't realize in kids today, if they're listening, is like, make sure it's the right fit. Because when I, when I committed and I ended up calling the other coaches and I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm going to call you like a man. I wasn't, I mean, I was young. I was 17. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, this is my, this is my decision. I'm calling you man to man. Like this is, this is my decision. And you really kind of saw people's true colors. They were like, how could you go to that school? Like you're making the biggest mistake of your life. Like some coaches like really show their colors. So to kids or anyone making that decision today, like make sure you, you know who you're signing with. Wow. So I ended up, yeah, so I ended up going to Hillsdale, and um, thank thank goodness I I committed early because in my senior year, with uh, about nine games left in my season, uh, I actually developed thoracic outlet syndrome in my left shoulder. So what was happening is is I'd be playing basketball, and it felt like someone tied a rubber band around my shoulder, hmm. like, and then when I was like playing, my whole left arm would turn purple. And like I had zero blood flow to it. Oh my goodness. I've never heard of that. It was super rare. So I ended up going to, I, I, so I found this out and I, I had to tell Hillsdale, like, Hey, listen, I have this thoracic outlet syndrome. I have to have a major surgery. And I'm so blessed that to, that to, to, to choose them. Cause the coaches were like, Hey, you know, you're going to get through this. You're going to come back even better than before. Hmm. When realistically any other school could have been like, Hey, sorry. Like, you know, that's too much for us or anything like that. So I'm still thankful to this day for that coaching staff and, and taking a chance on me. But to finish my senior year, I ended up going to St. Louis and had a 12-hour surgery to remove my first rib on my left side. Oh, and my goodness. I, yeah. So what I figured out, like, from there, 
I had to figure out like literally just everything from like walking again, from like running, from all these things, your posture and everything. Like I was like laying in, it's, it's, it's a crazy story. And, um, I'm so grateful to be where I am today after that moment. And I'm so thankful for, for Hillsdale and those guys who stuck with me, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. We don't have to get into all the like specifics, but that's really interesting. Your shoulder hurt and they had to remove a rib. So now you have one less rib on one side. Uh, as weird as it is, I still have the rib. My mom I was going to ask that. <laughs> of course, of course. So what happened was like, it's uh, the thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, it, it sounds familiar because Markel Fultz like suffered something similar this year or when he was um, in his time in the NBA when he was like having shoulder problems or whatever. It's mm-hmm. similar, but it's different. So my problem was one of the four main arteries of your heart, you know, you have two that goes to your arm, two that goes to your legs one of the main blood vessels runs to like your arm and it was getting pinched between my collarbone and my first rib. So it wasn't getting blood flow. So by taking out the first rib, it was able to like uh-huh. release. Like, and, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what was happening. In- wow. So literally that's why your arm was turning purple because you did not have circulation. Yeah. It was a strange time. Holy cow. Yeah. Okay. So they, they stayed true to their promise with you and, um, you started your freshman year. Were you fully recovered by then or? I was, um, it was, it took a lot of rehab. It took a lot of, a lot of hours. I was in St. Louis for two weeks after the surgery. I was, I couldn't have done without my parents. They really helped me out, but like, it was, it was a long road to recovery. And, uh, yeah, I went on to be a four-year starter at Hillsdale and, had a, had a pretty good, I mean, had a pretty good career. I mean, not like super elusive or anything, but like I, yeah. I had a, we had a, we had a good time. That's amazing. Whenever I hear of freshmen that are able to start, I'm just impressed because I didn't play at all, hardly my first two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, that's really pretty cool. So how was the adjustment to, you know, high school to college? Did you feel like it was a big leap as far as basketball goes or, um, you know, balancing studies at the same time as school and sports? It was tough. So I don't know if you know much um, about Hillsdale. Hillsdale is like a highly... It's in Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very highly academic, like conservative liberal, liberal arts school where the professors actually like enjoy giving you worse grades because it makes the school look tougher, like look harder. So we had to take classes over the constitution, over Western heritage, over, um, like different, like all these core classes that aren't normally included or made mandatory at other colleges, but Mm. they, but they pride themselves on teaching the liberal arts and teaching you a different way of thinking. And these teachers in a sense want you to struggle, to figure like to find like to find a new way of thought, I guess, is how, sure. how I explain it. And uh, balancing that was tough. You know, in high school, I feel like anybody can anybody can ha- have decent grades in high school. It, if you if you put it, if you put forth an effort in high school, um, I feel like you can you can have a decent GPA. But then once you get to college, it it's a whole nother level. You you don't have, just have to put forth an effort. You gotta like really really try. You gotta really <laughs> study. And that was a whole different thing that, um, like a, a moment of, of awakening, I guess. And 
balancing that with basketball, you got to perform, but then you also like, wow, I really got to study here. You know, there was, there were some long nights and stuff. Looking back, I probably should have studied more. I probably should have, you know, did these things, but I graduated and, and, and I'm super thankful for that. Mm-hmm. It's a private school, but obviously they were giving out full scholarships. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Okay. Um, and what was your major? My major is accounting. I was always kind of good with numbers. Um, okay. I really enjoyed it. And my, uh, my dad always told me, he's like, you know, you get your CPA, you're set for life. People are always going to need accountants. And so I was like, well, uh, <laughs> I'm very I'm true. And I'm good at very and, true. Uh, I'm going to do that. Uh huh. So then did you, I mean, I'm just thinking when you started college, did you even think you were going to continue playing when you were finished? Was that a, a dream or something you thought about? I think it was kind of, it was always kind of in the back of my head. Like it was always kind of a dream. Um, I'd say it wasn't really a reality until I saw a guy from Hillsdale who graduated right as I came in. He started playing professional basketball overseas. And so as he was playing, I was kind of following his career. And at the end of my four years, I was like, well, I'm not really ready to start the real world real world yet. I'm going to try to see if I can do this thing, if I can make this um, into a job, I'll be able to travel. It all like it all sounded awesome. So I was just like, well, let's try to let's try to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And the process of getting an agent, did you have to go look for one? Did someone contact you? Because a lot of people ask me how I did it. Um, I'm curious to know how, how did you go about it? So my coach had a connection, um, with a guy through Toledo. So my, my head coach called the Toledo head coach and was like, Hey, you know, I have a guy, I got a guy here trying to play professional. Like, do you have any agents that you recommend or you've worked with in the past that you trust? So I ended up finding my agent through him and then, uh, Ended up doing like some showcases and stuff and, and, and looking around, but that was the ultimate guy that I stuck with. And, and it, it's kind of a, it's hard to lead people in the right way because as I'm sure, you know, like there's, it, it's so easy for people to send you a message on Facebook. It's so easy for people to reach out and be like, Hey, I'm an agent. I got, I can make you X amount of dollars in X country. Or sometimes you'll see posts on Facebook, like, Oh, I'm looking for a, a four or five. That's going to make, X amount of dollars to play here or something like that. And I feel like there were so many people like reaching out being like, Oh, I can help you. I can help you. But like really trying to find someone that you trust and you have like previous connections with is important because mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but I've heard a ton of horror stories about people trusting these people or like getting in with bad agents. And then all of a sudden, like they don't have jobs in a year or two when there's a ton of jobs out here and, or like, they don't get along with their agent and they're forgotten about or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's tough, you know, and I, I, I encourage anyone to really like sit down, get to know their agent and make sure that they're, you know, professional and, and come with good credibility and, and sources. And you don't have to be, you know, a division one guy to find a job overseas, mm-hmm. you know, like talking with you and talking with Nick Novak, um, for guys playing Division Two, it's definitely possible, and there are, like you said, a lot of jobs out there. I think if you if you put in the work, and uh, like you'll find a job, and if you're good, I mean, you have to be good enough. And I think height is an, is an important thing that helped me along the way. My agent told me he's like, you know, it helps that you're you know six ten, six nine, six ten that I can get you a job. You know, if if you came to me and you were you were six foot six one. Cause like, I don't know if I could, if I could say the same thing, but mm-hmm. everyone always needs a big man. 
Um, you know, I think I really think that with my circumstance and how things panned out, I, it's hard for me to like to describe, but I really see myself that I could have played at a higher level than division than division two, you know. But there are so many good players in, in, at the Division II level. I feel like it gets looked over, you know, in the States. But I think sometimes, you know, Division II, Division III guys can really make a name for themselves overseas. Mm-hmm. And my agency reps a lot of, like, Division Three, Division II guys that have, like, gone on to make millions and millions of dollars. Brad Olson being one of them, coming from a Division Three in Alaska, and all of a sudden he's like, playing in Barcelona, playing for Mur- Murcia, like, wow, you know, he's amazing, you know? So it's like the, the players are there. The talent is there. Um, if you work hard and, and this business, you have, you have to get lucky and be patient. But if, I mean, if you work hard, you'll, you'll be rewarded. So. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love those stories. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really encouraging, you know, cause I talked to some guys coming out of like college and stuff now that want that have the dream of playing and, if you, if you give it a try, you know, if you work hard, anything's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so give me a summary real quick of the different places you went and the different teams over the last, I have it written down here. Seven. How many years has it been? This is year seven. This is year seven. Okay. Yeah. Year because seven. I feel you switched teams a couple times during the same <laughs> year. So that's why I have more written down. Um, but yeah, you started out in Spain, correct? In Huesca? Yes, I did. My first year was in Huesca. Uh, I played in Leb Gold there. And then I, from from after that year, I went to Castellon and mm-hmm. played in Leb Silver. I was there. We won uh, the the league. And um, we, we moved the team up to Leb Gold after that year. It was, it was an oh, amazing awesome. year. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then... Uh, and then from there we went. I went to Porto. I played for FC Porto for two years, in which Port, is in the top league in Portugal. Yep, Portugal. Okay. Yep. I've heard really good things about that city, by the way, too. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, right on the river. It's probably what like it's probably one of my favorite cities I've ever played in. It yeah. is the favorite. Oviedo's a close second, but the problem is I haven't gotten much to explore. But we'll get there. So I played two years. <laughs> In, in Porto, Portugal, in the top league. And we were, we were able to win the league one of those years, which was also incredible. So I was just like, winning these championships was amazing. So then we went, after those two years, I had the opportunity to go to Japan and play with my best friend from college. And uh, we went to the same team in Japan. So we, I played there, and it was, it was awesome to play with, like, an old college teammate in the professional realm. Like, it was, it was a dream come true. Hmm. And... Um, Ended up breaking my hand in January and uh, was sent home to recover. Like they, they let me go. And eight weeks later, on like it was like Easter Sunday, I got a phone call from my agent and I signed in Argentina to finish out the year for, in the top league in Argentina. So I played down there for two months to finish out that year. After that year, I headed back to Castellon and played in, in Lab Gold again. Um, and had that year last year, and then this year, had the roller coaster that we we referred to earlier was it's. I started out in Japan, uh, for a team in Fukuoka. Um, we were losing a lot, so I was let go. <clears throat> I was in the second league in Fukuoka, and then from the, went to the third league in Saga. I played a a stint, a stint of game, a short like I was there for like a month or so. And then I was hanging around because my wife was pregnant. And I was like, well, I don't want to keep moving around. The team was awesome. The people there were great and they were taking care of us. 
And then all of a sudden Oviedo calls and Lev Gold and said, hey, we need you to finish out the year with us. And it was it was too good to be true. And they were going to take care of me and my wife. So we flew out here to finish uh, the year, the short year. We played two games here and then uh, the quarantine life happened. So, wow. Yeah, it's a long list of teams. It's been kind of crazy the past couple of years, but uh, yeah, very cool. Several different countries or continents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have never interviewed anyone who has played in Japan. So I am selfishly going to ask you some questions about that. Um, I'm assuming you went over with some stereotypes, um, what those were. I'm not sure. But when you were finally there and living there, were those stereotypes true? Were they not so true? Um, what was your initial thought? I don't, I don't remember much of my initial thought. Um, but I would say the stereotypes I felt before I went came to fruition in a sense, because they are a very respectful culture. They like, they're very, um, they're very nice. They're very kind people and they're very orderly. They're very like, everything is done the right way. Um, Japan is probably one of the places that one of the most professional basketball leagues that I've been a part of Mm. and opposed to like, everyone gets their money on time. You're always taken care of. You're always taking like anything you need. They will help you out. They're very professional. Um, I don't. I, that's that's probably like the stereotypes I had. Now things I weren't. I wasn't ready for. I remember my first year there. As I told you, I was with my best friend from college, the guy I came in with, like awesome guy. And we go to these like sponsor events, and we're wearing a suit, and uh, we walk into this building, and, and they ask us to take our shoes off, and they but they. I, I wear size 17 shoe and he wears like size 15 or whatever. And then they give us these tiny slippers, like these oh. super tiny slippers. So we, we take our, we take our dress shoes, our nice dress shoes off at the front door. And then they give us these like size, I can't even explain to you, like probably size eight slippers that we have to walk in. And we go to like this sponsor meeting where it's super respectful. Like everyone is like sitting down and these, these, um, Japanese women are coming in in like a full like get up like full nice like gown and like serving us coffee and tea and crackers on their knees like shuffling things around like super like uh, just traditional and like fancy and wow. it was were, insane yeah were you sitting on a chair or were you sitting on the floor it was like a low couch but oftentimes like if we were to go to sponsor dinners or something it would be on a floor and you could always, I tell you what, you could always point out the Americans in Japan at dinners because they don't have the hip flexibility that Japanese people have. So you see us there like holding our knees, <laughs> like trying to like lean against a wall or something. Cause like, and then the Japanese are just sitting there cross-legged, like super happy for hours. Oh my gosh. This is so there. great. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, I have been trying to do yoga and Pilates while in quarantine and I'm like, my flexibility is zero. I cannot imagine sitting on the floor for a couple hours trying to enjoy my meal in dress pants. Mm-hmm. Well, what's crazy is in Japan, they don't have park benches. Like they don't, you, you walk on the street and there's no bench, there's no trash cans. So if they're tired and they want to sit down, they just go into a deep squat. Like, and they're just comfortable and they just sit there and they can eat lunch or whatever. But I'm talking like, Deep squat is in both your both feet are right next to each other, and they just go butt to heels. 
right there. And they're just so flexible. And they're like, oh, yeah, just hang it out. Just like eating a sandwich. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. The hip flexibility, the all that stuff. And I'm sitting there. And we go to we go to our weight like our weight training, and the Japanese guy's like staring at me. He's like looking at my squat form, looking at my like hip flexibility as a tall guy, and he's like just like shaking his head. And I'm like, I don't got it. You guys got it? I don't got it. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. that is really interesting, and I I can just imagine it, you know. So what about um? I love food. Every country I go to, you know, I'm a foodie. I like to try everything. Um. I'm assuming you had some very traditional experiences as far as food goes, like sushi or just seafood or... What's surprising when I tell people is that I think Japanese food is up there with some of my favorite food that I've ever had overseas. Now, I think Spanish food is is the top for me because I love Spanish food. Everything about it, I'm a huge fan. But like when we went to Japan, everything is phenomenal. I'm a big fan of sushi. I love fish. Um everything is really fresh. And, and honestly, for an American going to Japan, it is easy. Like they have some, a lot of their food is like easy transition for Americans. And I say that, but like, meaning like it's easy for like most American foreign players to go over there and eat. A lot of it is like fried, you know, you can always get like rice. You can always get like, they have, they're a big fan of like, like fried chicken, fried pork. Like, you know, it's, and there's like ramen, like everyone like likes ramen. It's, you know, just like noodles and, and broth and stuff. So we, I tried some different things. They took like me and my, my buddy, we, we took some of our Japanese guys We're like, all right, let's go, let's go eat some, some Japanese food. I don't know. So we go and we go to the sushi spot and, uh, I was like, Hey, you order for me. The guy was Yusuke. I'm like, Yusuke, you are, he was like, Yusuke, you go ahead and order. And he's like, all right. So he, these trays come out on this sushi place and we pick them up. And when he's like, Oh yeah, tr- typical, typical Japanese. You know, I was like, okay, there's like fish, like all over this, like little small, like tadpoles with <laughs> eyes still in it on like this little sushi ball thing. And I was like, what in the world? But it was fun. Cause like my buddy was there. So like we're sitting there and we try it. And then like the next one comes out and it's like this green paste and we try it and I'm like, man, that is not good. And he's like, oh yeah, that's uh he had to like look it up. So we're like sitting there in like suspense while he looks it up on his phone. It's like, oh crab brain. And I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> so we we tried some different things that they eat and the food other than like those things. If you can like pick and choose your places, obviously. They have some very, very strange stuff, like live squid and, and all that stuff. But if you like if you if you stay away from those things, you can eat like really good. And when you sit down with your Japanese teammates, I'm assuming they're using, are they using chopsticks? Yeah, everything is chopsticks. Yeah. Okay. And then that leads me to another question. Like how was the English of your teammates and your coaches and just people in general? Very poor, to be honest. Okay. Um, I would think you would think like the Japanese culture, like my, my first thought before going over there was, it's a very advanced culture, you know, they're, they're very, but I, I, maybe I was thinking like, because they're maybe advanced technologically that maybe like they'll speak better or, or anything. But I went over there and I would say my first year in my first team, maybe like one or two people spoke English. Wow. Yeah. And like, when I say they speak English, I'm talking like very, very broken. Like, <laughs> like I don't even know if they understood me half the time, but <laughs> 
but our trainer spoke English and he, he was our translator and he just became a friend of ours. Like we were like, okay, like show us the way. And he ended up like taking us to different like wasabi farms and stuff. And we befriended him really easily. So, um, the language barrier was, was very, very difficult for sure. Did you live? Sorry, go ahead. No, it was just especially on the court. Like it was just, it's hard to communicate, you know, when you're trying to explain yourself to like a teammate and like why you're doing things and they look at you and you can just tell that they don't understand you. It's, it's, it's pretty frustrating. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, were you living close enough to the gym where you could get there on your own or did you drive? Did you take public transportation? Cause I'm assuming all the signs are in Japanese. Mm-hmm. So we drove, we had a car okay. and not only are the signs in Japanese, but it's also on the opposite side of the road. Oh, so if you can imagine, right, you're, you're driving in a car on the opposite side of the road on the opposite side of the car. So like you're driving and you go to make a left turn and you got to like, you got to hug the, you got to hug the curb, right? Cause like normally in the States you take a left turn, you're like, oh, I'm going to the right. But now I'm like, oh, you got to like, you got to hug <laughs> it and, and stay in the left lane. And it was like, there was a couple times where we're like, we're driving on the, like a one lane road and there's a car coming at us and we're like, oh shoot, which side am I supposed to go on on this car? You know, it's like, yeah, because your instincts kind of just want to kick in and take over, but yeah, but it was, it was interesting. It was fun. And, and I'm assuming you stuck out just a little bit walking down the street. Yeah. I mean, yes, we, uh, my wife and I went to Tokyo for uh, Christmas that year and she, she ended up taking a video at a temple or something like that. And she was probably, I don't know, a couple, I'd say like 50 yards away or so. And she like was span like spanning the crowd and all of a sudden like she comes to me and like she can see me like a head above everybody else, like just staring back at her. And it was funny. Cause she's pretty yeah. tall, like she's six two. So it was funny. Mm-hmm. We just would walk around and people would just look at us like giants, like Right. Well, it's interesting about the language too. I'm just thinking in Spain, a lot of the basketball technology uh, not technology jargon is the same, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of there are a lot of English words that are used. So in Japan, they don't use those English words? Uh, they do. So like traveling, they'll say. Okay. Um, they, they'll say it, but then they'll also say like, they'll put like a like an O on the end. It's almost like Spain. Like they'll be like, like painto or something like that. That's how they'll announce it. Like the paint. Uh-huh. Yeah. So like they'll, they'll like put like their own spin on it, I guess. It's some basketball words. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's pretty cool. Not many people can say that they've lived in Japan and had that experience twice. Yeah. Um, it, it, well, I really enjoyed my time in Japan and that really went with me making the decision to go back there, um, this past year is because I really do enjoy my time there. I really like the people. I really like the culture. Um, mm-hmm. it's very easy to live there as a foreigner. And I know a lot of people may think that, man, Japan is so different. It's so intimidating, like the language barrier and stuff. But to be honest, like people are so nice. Like it's, it's incredible. We went to the grocery store one time and we were looking for something. It might've been like nail polish remover, something for my wife. And like, we were asking and looking and we asked someone and they didn't speak a word of English, but all of a sudden they looked at us and like, kind of like we're looking at the translation on our phone and they had no idea. And I promise you, like, this person just went and sprinted, like, around the store to try to find someone for us. Like, they were, like, so sweet, like, these people. And it's, like, it's through and through that culture. It's just they're very nice and very respectful. And, and it, the basketball out there is tough for 
uh, for me and this my kind of game. But um, the living there was was awesome. So when you say people are really respectful, what are the fans like? Do they get loud and rowdy? Do they, or are they just like sitting there silently? <laughs> so it's very silent. It's very, this is going to sound bad, but it, it like, it is like, they're very kind of like robotic in a sense of like, it's, it, there's a huge show before the game and, and it's the same show all the time, but they will like have dancers, they'll have lights, they'll have like an announcer and it'll be like this huge like show. It needs to be like a, I don't know, an event mm-hmm. and people will come and they'll sit there, they'll clap their hands. But at the end of the day, it almost feels like the fans don't care if you win or lose. They're there for the show. Mm. So like it was a huge change. We come. So like everyone's there clapping hands, like just happy to be there. Like they're so happy. Like after the game, you walk around and you just give high fives at people and people just get super juiced to just like touch your hand, just give a high five. So it was a huge change. We come to Oviedo in the first game. It's back to the air horns. Like everyone just like yelling at the refs, like screaming, like, Fuera! you know, yeah. <laughs> everyone just super mad and like intense. And I was like, okay, like it fills you up a little bit more as a player, like the passion and the, and the, the, the energy of like the Spanish fans. Right. What about the fans in Argentina? How do they compare to Spanish fans? So I, the the fans in Argentina were a little bit different. Um, they were also intense. They're very similar, but I don't think they compare to Spain. I don't think they're as intense. Okay. Now I think I think it, I was only there for a short time, so I'm trying to remember. But like for our big games against like San Lorenzo, like one of the the top teams there, they would fill it out and people would get intense. They'd have like drums and stuff, and it would be it'd be intense. But I don't know if it would be. Spanish level. Okay. Um, and just going back to Japan, one quick sec, just because I love I love culture and yeah, um, yeah. learning about all this. Because people sit down in that squat position all the time. Would you? Did you ever see anybody that was overweight? So you you see like the traditional sumo wrestlers every now and then. Oh. So like you'll see people like walking around and like uh, uh, not necessarily the sumo wrestler like get up, but you'll see them walking around being bigger and with the ponytail and you can, you can normally tell. Um, but no, I would say as like a, as a society, they, they do have people that are, that are overweight, but it's not very visible, I guess. Okay. Did you go watch a sumo wrestling match? Unfortunately I did not. Um, I was like, I really wanted to, uh, but they're really like hard to like find tickets for like during our season. So during our season in Japan, we'd play every Saturday, Sunday, back to back. Oh, yeah. So like that was the only way because they work so hard during the week that that's the only time that people would come to the games is Saturday, Sunday to enjoy. Hmm. So like sometimes it'd be like some midweek, but there'd be we'd play 60 games maybe in the regular season in like three midweek games throughout the whole year. So it's always Saturday, Sunday, back to back. You'd play, you play six o'clock, six, maybe six o'clock Saturday and then two o'clock Sunday. Wow. Yeah. So always like a quick, quick turnaround. Against the same team. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was really interesting, like strategy wise and, and things like that. What about practices? Were they super intense? Like, you know, we have these stereotypes and whether they're right or wrong, I have the stereotype that practices would be really long and just like repetitive drills. And I don't know, is that true or is that way off? 
So, no, it's, it's true, very true in a sense that practices are very long because the way the Japanese person looks at practice is like they, they almost look at it as like punching a clock. So when we came to practice, it also depends on the coach. So, like, I had a Spanish coach there, and I've all, I've, I've played for it, and then I also played for a Japanese coach. And the Japanese coach, it was mandatory, it was mandatory to show up at the gym an hour before practice. And like in that hour before practice, you could do whatever you wanted. Like you could, like you just, but you had to be in the gym an hour before practice. Hmm. And then we we practiced probably for like an hour and a half, maybe two hours. But then the Japanese people, the Japanese players would stay and shoot for like an, another hour and a half after practice. But like it, it was like almost like they needed to, but like they wouldn't. Sometimes they wouldn't even be doing like productive shots. They'd just be there because they felt like they had to be. Like that was their job. They had to put in their time. Okay. You know, so like a lot of times coaches will want them to be there to like work on shots and stuff and people will come in early and leave super late. And it's, it's, it's like, I don't know, it's like their work ethic. Sometimes they work. We, we call it, we call it like fake hustle. Like they're, they're like working hard, but they're not working hard. You know, it's like, it's, it, it doesn't make sense. I don't know if that, oh. does that, does that, you understand? Yeah. Like how efficient are you being? I mean, you can come in and do a workout in an hour and if you're efficient, you can get a lot accomplished or you can spend two hours kind of just dinking around. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of like how I've looked at it now <clears throat> there, of course you like to get shots up and stuff after there's, there's ways to do it. And there's ways where they're just sitting there like to be punching the clock essentially, you know? But not like getting like, oh, you know, my shot's wrong. I need to get like meaningful reps up, like game speed reps to uh-huh. try to get confidence and stuff. But. Right. Another stereotype I have of Japan is like young children being in school all day. And then after school, they're in English class. They're in violin lessons. They're in this, they're in that. Like their days are packed with classes. Your mm-hmm. professional teammates, were they studying? Had they studied? Do they balance the two things? Because I'm assuming like becoming a professional player in Japan, is that something accepted by families? That's a great question. Uh, to be honest, I don't know per se, because I don't think I've ever said, was able to like sit down with a Japanese player and ask them like mm-hmm. the deep questions of like, how does your family feel about you playing basketball? Like, is everything okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I believe that Basketball players are is a very respected profession in Japan, and they're actually starting to love basketball more and more. But their main sport is baseball. Like they love baseball out there. Like they're so their baseball games will look more like like Spanish soccer games. Like they'll have packed. crazy fans out there, packed, sold out. Like people banging on the drums, like super fans blowing horns and stuff. But I don't know. Like when it came to basketball games, it wasn't it wasn't that way. But they love baseball. But I think as as a Japanese like player, you're very respected by your your family and like as a profession. Um, to answer the first part of your question, I don't I, I don't know if they like went to school or I don't know if they were still going to school. A lot of them, I believe, were, were done with school because a lot of them were like 21, 22. Now, mm-hmm. when I played my this year, when I was in the third division, we had a young kid that was actually commuting through to university and playing basketball. So he was doing a little bit of both. Okay. But that even caused problems for him because for him, studies always came first. Mm-hmm. So there was there was problems with him like commuting. And it, it, it's almost like in the European sense where you have to pick and choose because he was like missing some games and he only joined us full time. 
his university stopped like for like mm-hmm. a break or something like that. Right. Um, well, this podcast is called another season in the books, which has kind of that double meaning of another season come and gone. And then another season studying while being a professional athlete. And you've played on quite a few different teams in different countries, different continents. Um, yeah. What has your experience been? Have you had a lot of teammates? Like, cause I know Europeans, if they stay in Europe, it's really hard to balance your studies and playing at the same time, because it's not like in the States where you are on a scholarship to play and to study. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just curious, have you, do you feel like you've had a lot of teammates that are studying, um, and balancing their, their professional sport? Mm-hmm. I have. And it, it's funny you say another season in books. Cause honestly, Leslie, like they go faster and faster. Like <laughs> they like, it's insane. Like these seasons keep flying by. It's crazy. I'm on year seven. Yeah. But, um, I have, I have seen a lot of teammates and I've actually talked to mainly Spanish guys and some Portuguese guys, but I try to like encourage the importance of studying mm-hmm. because oftentimes they're like, I want to be a basketball player. I want to, you know, studying's not that important. I'll study later or anything like that. And I was like, no, like you really should study. Like it's really important. Um, I've seen some of my teammates uh, really like work long hours. You know, they make long drives just to take a test or like they'd be up super late studying after long practices and stuff. And I guess I like I empathize with them because like I was I was there at one point, you know, I was like mm-hmm. I was with them uh, doing that in college. Um, but it's hard because in the professional realm, as you know, like the two a days and your life is supposed to revolve around basketball. And then for them to go and sit in the class for six to eight hours is is, is incredibly difficult. But I, I have I have encountered quite a bit of younger type type players that really like try to balance the both. And it, it's it's difficult. Yeah. I was looking at your roster from this year and I think you had a guy, maybe Lithuania um, or some Eastern countries. And I wonder about them, like if they studied or if they just kind of, they made a, uh, what do you call it? Calculated risk and just Mm -hmm. said, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my life to playing. And so I played with a lot of people from a lot of different countries. And I think I'm not going to speak or say names of people that have taken one decision or the other one, but I have, I've definitely seen both played out uh-huh. and some of the people that like made the decision have eventually gone back and changed their mind and stuff but I've, I've seen both sides of the coin mm-hmm. I've seen people be like I'm gonna play basketball that's all I'm gonna do and I've also seen people like wear themselves out and, and grind really hard for the years and try to get their degree mm-hmm. but I'm not sure and I'll, I'll even ask you I'm not even sure like having a degree is as important in Europe as it is in the states now, obviously, like, but like when they're studying, sometimes they're just studying for like their GED. A lot of these, a lot of like people I've played with, like sometimes some of them didn't even like graduate high school and stuff because they're like just jammed into the professional realm so quickly. Yeah, it's different. Um, I've heard that high school in Spain is really difficult, like your last two years um, and not everybody passes or not everybody decides to do it. And they get into like a type of professional Um, you know, like learning to be an electrician or doing something like that. I think having a degree here in Spain is pretty important. I've talked to a lot of people. They say that Spaniards have something they say in Spanish called titulitis, which Mm -hmm. is like the word title, you know, meaning like, oh, I am this and this and I have this degree and that degree. So Mm -hmm. I do think they, they definitely value that. You know, whether you go to a public university or a private university, there's a lot of controversy with that 
because people say that at the private universities, you just pay a lot of money and they give you your degree. And at the public, you really have to study and you have to work for it. So, I mean, I, it's probably like that in a lot of different places around the world. Mm-hmm. But I was just curious to hear um, your experiences because I'm more familiar with the women's side, um, not as familiar with men's side. But, um, and what about yourself? I mean, you got your degree in accounting, so whenever you're done playing, you're going to have a job somewhere, but do you feel like you need to be brushing up on things or like taking courses? I don't know if in accounting things change over the years. Um, I don't know, seven years. Have you like, does that, is that in the back of your mind at all or not really? It is a little bit. Um, I, I talk to people about this and I think that what, what gives me confidence and they, they could just be pulling my chain, but they're like, you know, if you're, if you're going to go into an interview that I'm, this is them speaking, I'm, they are saying like, I'm, I'm going to hire someone that played professional basketball. You know, I don't really care about, you know, your GPA in college or something like that, but like maybe a professional basketball player will have the experiences of, of, of playing and like the, the team interaction and stuff like that. Now they're also saying this as my friend, so maybe of course they're 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 hyping me up a little bit. But in the back of my mind, I'm still um, thinking about going back to school. Uh, a couple of years ago, I took a couple of master's level classes online, um, just to kind of freshen up a little bit on on some accounting principles and like intermediate accounting and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I am like 20 credits, maybe not even shy of 150 credits, which I will need to sit or certified to sit for the bar, uh, the CPA exam. Okay. So schooling is something that I'll probably have to take again eventually. Um, but as I was telling before, and, and, and these young guys are, are going to school and stuff, like when you have two a days and you want to sit down in front of a, a computer and try to think about a master's level accounting or, or something like it in school, it's, it's difficult. You know, you got to sometimes you got to cook your meals. You got to, right. I mean, you got to get a siesta in for sure. And you got like, you know, you got all these things and then like, it's like, all right, so you practice late at night because it's going to be Spain. You're going to practice eight to 10. You're going to get your dinner, maybe 1030. And then, and then what are you going to do? You know, you're going to sit there and, and study till 1:30 in the morning when you got way to eight tomorrow, the next day. It's, it's, it's tough and it's, it's real hard. Man, I'm telling you, I was getting home three nights out of the week this past year at midnight. Yep. And I was having dinner at midnight you know, because practice was so late. Um, I've seen, I've seen 80, 90, I don't say 90, 90 is a little much, but I would say 70 to 80 year old people outside having, having a beer, having a glass of wine at 12 o'clock at night on like a, (laughs) on like a Wednesday. And I'm like, this is incredible. Like my parent, my grandparents ate at 4.30 PM and they were in bed by six. I don't know what these these grandparents are doing. That's crazy. It's the know. It's in their blood ever since they're little kids. I mean, it's unbelievable. I remember my first year in Spain, I would go out with my teammates because I wanted to be social, but they would stay out till six o'clock in the morning and I was exhausted. And then you combine that with not really understanding the language, not knowing the words to the songs. So you're like just bored out of your mind and you're having to stay there till six o'clock because they're your ride. Oh man. It's always reggaeton. (laughs) It's always reggaeton. It's always So true. So true. Um, how would you say that all your years playing overseas have contributed to your growth as an individual? Um, like what will you take away from all these years? That's a great question. I would say more than anything, it's taught me how to adapt. It's taught me how to, um, when things don't go exactly how I envisioned them, 
it's taught me how to find a new solution. It's taught me to just find a way in, in, in simple tasks as in like going to the grocery store and, you know, can't find the thing you want or trying to talk to someone about a direction or, or where something is or, or anything like you, you find a way, you find a way to get things done, I guess. Mm-hmm. And whether it's pulling translator up on your phone, which has been in like a, a, a saving grace, like it, 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 you just find a way, I guess. And a lot of, a lot of times I came over and I'm like, I'm expecting a year to go one way and I'm expecting things are going to be this way, this way. But like a lot of times it doesn't happen. A lot of times you're thrown in situations where you're, you're the odd man out. And you gotta like you gotta you just gotta figure it out. My my second year in Spain, I was the only American on the team. Mm. And I speak I, t- I tell people I like I'm I'm not fluent, but I'm 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 pretty much fluent in Spanish because my second year I would go out to eat, eat with all these teammates and I'd be the only American. Mm-hmm. So it was literally like all right, sink or swim. You know, are you gonna join in the conversation? Or are you gonna sit there and just be by yourself? And mm-hmm. so in, in those moments, I was like, all right, well, now it's time to expand yourself, get out of your comfort zone, get out of your previous thinking about different situations and learn and, and just become a new person. You know, and I'm not saying that in a sense of like changing who you are, but but pushing your limits is, helps you grow. And I think that's and, and more than anything, I think it's helped me respect foreigners as being foreigner for seven years in these different countries. I think you see people that struggle with English and a lot of times when, when they're living in the U.S. and you see someone struggle with English, you're like, oh, what are you doing? Like, learn English. And I think a lot of people will think that. And But it's like, you know, they're doing the best they can. Like, I've been in Spain. I've been in Japan. I didn't speak a lick of Japanese. And, you know, it's like it's almost like I, I understand where people are coming from a little bit. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, it's like I think it, I think it helped me because it pushed me out of my comfort zone. It made me like realize like people I guess foreigners living in the in the US and I don't know just like just being able to adapt adapt yeah so yeah well you definitely developed empathy you know just with people in general um I think about it all the time because when I came my Spanish was not great I minored in Spanish but it was not great and they were so encouraging and they were willing to listen to me and be patient and I just thought wow in the states I don't think people would be that patient you know, yeah. I don't think people would be that understanding, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they always say that, oh, your Spanish is so great. And they're always encouraging me. So that's really, it's really nice. Yeah, um, I, for sure. And I think that's, it, that Spain's a great place. I think, you know, you're, you, I had problems a little bit in the smaller, smaller cities I've been in and, my, and you don't speak Spanish. It's, it's, it's difficult, you know, especially with the older group of people, but um, they are very nice people and they, they really are willing to help you out. And if you just make the effort, that's what it's about. If you make the effort to, to speak their language, to get on their level, that's all, that's all they, they can really ask for. Right. In Oviedo, they speak regular Castellano Spanish, right? It's not, um, okay. I was thinking it was maybe Gallego or something mm-hmm. like that, but Galician, no. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. So sometimes you'll see some Gallego, but like, it's not like it's all, it's all Castellano. Okay. So I like the fact that you talked about being able to adapt because I think coming from the U.S., um, whether you play Division One, Division Two, we are spoiled and we right. have so much given to us and our resources and our facilities are top of the line. Um, how was the adjustment when you came overseas and what would you tell younger players? What would you tell them to expect as far as like medical treatment, um, gyms, weight rooms? 
all of that? I would say expect the worst, hope for the best. But like, <laughs> it's it's pretty rough. Uh, it, again, it depends on what team you're playing for. But I've been in teams where the me- the medical trainer is someone that's only there part time, and I've never seen more people tape their ankles by themselves than I have in Europe and in other places. Mm-hmm. I remember being in Portugal and all of a sudden some guy, one of my teammates has a video of like a, a gun, you know, like the, the shooting guns that you have at, at colleges and university. It's very standard, you know, and they were looking at it and they're like, man, like, this is so awesome. This is like the craziest thing ever. <gasps> I can like think about like having this or whatever. And I was like, like my college had two of those. Like I don't, I don't know why this is so like foreign or something. Right. Like that. My high school had one. Yeah, I know, and it's like it's crazy, and it, and it, and it's sad that like they can't get like shots up and stuff like that. But I would say to someone who's looking to play their first year overseas to just be productive in the hours that you have in the gym. You're not going to be in 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 rare instances you will be able to, but no, most likely you won't be able to call someone up and come and rebound for you. You won't like the gym will not always be open. You're going to have two hours and and most of the time you're going to have a team right after those two hours, like ready to jump on and and take the court time. It's just kind of how it is. You might have a gym that is the city owned and and you just have the court for that time. So my my suggestion would just be take advantage of the time that you have in the gym and and don't expect for things to be like you were like they like it was back in your college or university or even your high school, as you mentioned, like, right. You just, you just got to make the most of what you have. And I think that's the most important thing. Like we're, yeah, you realize you're spoiled, but then you also like, well, those things really don't matter as long as you put the work in. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I couldn't agree more getting to arriving to the end of the interview here. I have some just kind of rapid fire questions or um, mm-hmm. random questions to ask you. Yep. Um, what's your Jersey number and why? So my jersey number has bounced around over the years. My first year, I picked nine. My uh, my girlfriend at the time, I guess we weren't even engaged. She wore nine in, in, in college. And she like she let me go. She's now my wife. But she, she let me go overseas and we did the long distance thing. And I wore nine to like kind of like honor her in a sense because, you know, she was this great All-American volleyball player. And it was almost like a way to have her with me overseas. Hmm. Um, so I did that my first year and the second year I wore 10 cause I, I was a big fan of how Dennis Rodman like rebounded and I was like, I was like number 10. So I wore 10. Uh, let's see. I wore seven cause I like the number seven in completion in the Bible. I just think, I think it's, it, I don't know. I like the, the way it, it looks, I guess. And then I wore 33 in Japan because you know, I, I like the number 33. You got Larry Bird. I don't know. And then I, and then I, uh, I ended up wearing where I wore six in Argentina because it's what they gave me. I wore four here because I was it was a choice between four and six. So okay. like it was kind of one of those things. It's like I'm all over the board. I didn't I don't have a number exactly, but I remember um, as as a four or five. I'm sure you could respect coming to overseas and all of a sudden you're like, wait, I don't have to wear a number that's like fifty something. Like oh sweet, I can pick a super low number. So I was like <laughs> really juiced about that. What number did you wear in college? I wore 52 in college and like 53 in high school. So like, it's like, oh, you're, you're, you're a three XL. This is all the numbers you got. You got like 50, 53, 54, 54. Yeah. So. Oh, interesting. But I like all the different stories. That's, that's really nice. Mm -hmm. Um, when you go overseas, is there any food product you have to put in your suitcase that you know you're not going to be able to have? 
Mm-hmm. So my wife's a huge hot sauce fan. So if we're to bring something over, it's going to be Frank's Red Hot for sure. That okay. and peanut butter for sure. Usually you go and get the big industrial size ones, you know, if it, if it fits your weight requirements, though, of the suitcase. But um, peanut butter for sure because it's, it's not – it's not really a thing over here, as, as Nick said in one of your previous podcasts. He's like, you know, you can get it, but it's, it's super expensive for like a little thing. And yeah. nothing, nothing makes, nothing hits a spot or makes you like reminisce about being home than like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And- <laughs> right, which they do not eat over here. No. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Nutella is the thing. But I also think about guys like you who play overseas, who have big shoes, long jeans, long shirts. I mean, you aren't able to pack as much stuff in a suitcase as say a point guard on my team. Who's like five foot five. Yeah. I've learned, uh, I've learned kind of like to try to pack my shoes full because they usually take up like a lot of space. So I try to pack them full with like socks and, and underwear and stuff and then try <laughs> to throw it in my carry on. So like, it doesn't take up like a lot of weight and stuff, but right. over the years, I tell you what, I have become an absolute master packer of suitcases. It's been, it's, it's crazy every year. Somehow I accumulate more stuff in this apartment over nine months. And then to try to throw it in suitcases and get it back home under the 50 pound weight requirement. I tell you what, if there was a way I could be professional at that, sign me up. Yeah, the struggle is real. I don't know how we accumulate so much stuff, but good for you. You Mm -hmm. you need to do like a tutorial and, you know, teach people how to do this. (laughs) Oh my gosh, man. I try, but it's one of my teammates and many of my teammates could attest when they come to the apartment that last day, it's, it's madness. It's crazy. Well, it's funny because I know a lot of Americans who have just left stuff because it doesn't fit. And my Spanish teammates, they're always all excited because they're like, oh, can I have this? Can I have that? And they just, you know, because they can't fit it into their bag. Yep. I've done that. I've done that before. And it's kind of like last couple of days of practice. It's like, oh, who wants a T-shirt? Who wants a pair of <laughs> something like, oh, these tights have a small hole in them. I don't want to take them home. I got space for them. And teammates are just juiced. And, yep. Like, yep. Um, this question might take you a little bit to think about, but in Japan or Argentina or Spain or Portugal, um, is there a word that you really enjoyed learning or that you just thought was funny or it sounded funny or I don't know, like there's this word and I, I'm, I'm, and it's maybe funny now because I might've heard it wrong, but like my first year in Spain, I had this teammate who was like, said this word he'd be like i catalillo like and it's and he told me i asked him at the time i was like what like what are you saying catalillo and he's like i remember him saying it was like cute puppy or something like that i don't know like it doesn't even make sense though because i was like maybe it's slang or something so i used to think like i catalillo or something and all of a sudden it came to the point where like we say it sometimes and then my wife and i we got a dog and she, we were like, what should we name it? And we're like, oh, let's name it Catalillo. You know, like his full name is Catalillo. Like, and, and we'll call him Leo for short. And we still have him. And, and it's, it's kind of a cool story that we named him after like this Spanish word, which was kind of like a, it was like a fad. It was like around, you know, how teams say like certain words for like certain part of the season or something. So I guess that's kind of cool word because it, it has a story and it's still like connected to us and stuff. Yeah. But like I asked, I saw him later on. Like I was like, hey, you know. His name's Luis. I was like, Luis, you know, what is, like, what, you remember saying Catalillo all the time? Like, what does that mean? He's like, Nick, I don't even know if that word exists in Spanish. <laughs> in Spanish. I don't even know what you're talking about. And I was like, dang, well, I got a dog at home with a name on it. So 
here we go. <laughs> right, because I was going to say, I'm like, I have yeah. never heard that before. Ever, <laughs> it does ever. not mean <laughs> He said the same thing, like it's not like Perito or anything like that. Like he was like, no, nah. like he's like, Nick, I think you're crazy, man. I don't even know what you're talking about. I was like, well, I swear I heard it like my first year. Maybe I didn't know Spanish that well and just heard it that way. Who knows? That's so funny. You know, I have been keeping emails. I write a weekly email every week and I've done it for the past like 12 years that I've been playing overseas yeah. and I am finally like compiling them all together and I'm looking back at the like first emails that I wrote when I was in Spain. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't look up to see how the word was spelt or mm. where it was in Spain. And it's just so funny looking back at my like young naive self and what I thought I was hearing and what I thought yeah. I was, you know. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious too. And in, in the way like people say it, like oftentimes, you know, I'll write a message to, to someone or my wife will be writing a message and she'll like translate it and then, like translate English to Spanish and then she'll show it to me and I'll be like, no, that's not like, that's not like, that's not how you say it. You have to like change it. So oftentimes the translation gets lost and mm-hmm. the language barrier, it's, it's, it's always a challenge. It's always a fun, fun challenge. Yes. Yeah, lost in translation many times. Yeah. Um, and last question, what is your go-to bread and butter move? Bread and butter move would have to be just a right hook. I, I think it's for sure like one one dribble, I have to act it out. You know, I know people probably can see it, but I have to act it out as I do it, you know, because it's just how basketball players work. So I got to like low post, I'm going to catch it. So I'm going to go right-hand dribble, maybe on the right block because I'm going to go to the middle. I prefer going to the middle. So I'm on the right block, I catch. I'll take one dribble with my right, like a power dribble, and lean back and then turn into a hook. Uh-huh. Well, hey, and with that seven foot two wingspan, that yeah. hook shot is hard to block. Yeah, it's it, it's it's given me some success over the years. That's for sure. My dad always wanted me to learn the hook. He told me to practice it, practice it. But it was just so hard to master that I never really did. You yeah. know, I regret it. Would you I mean, what do you go to then? What do you what do you got? Um, well, I play the post. I'm yeah. not super tall. I'm like a four player, but um, I love spinning baseline. Just like spinning into a reverse layup. Um, That's something that I've liked ever since high school. But I feel like my game has kind of changed over the years. Um, But I like to face up and then attack. And then, you know, face up, attack, get them on my back, shimmy, shot fake, go whatever way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, even you, you got to act it out a little bit. You got to put yourself (laughs) on the court. You got to be like, hey, shot fake. You got to make like a noise, like a little shimmy. Hey, you know, like you got to act it out. Yes. Uh, as I've gotten older and as I've, you know, it's crazy in, in high school and college, you can just shoot that hook all the time. But as I've played in higher leagues, I'm not the tallest guy. So like I've, I've gone a lot to the face up game and that's probably one of my, like my second thing is just like a, like a Sigma jumper. We call it a Sigma step, like the, the open pivot mm-hmm. and just a jump shot because that face up game has become important to me only as I've gotten older, slower, and I'm not as tall, you know, as all these these young athletic centers that I go against. How tall is the tallest guy you've played against? I've played against someone that is probably seven three. Wow. Probably, yeah. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I've played against some pretty pretty tall guys. I think. Yeah, definitely. You have to adjust, just like yeah. you said. You have to adapt. You got to, or you can add to your game. I had a trainer for a summer, try to really teach me the the sky hook. You know, the Kareem sky hook. It didn't last long, but it's it's in the it's in the bag of tricks. Way deep, way way deep. If it, if it ever yeah. ever uh, needs to come out. 
Yeah, I don't know. This is a random question, but have you watched any games on television that they've shown on Spanish TV of like the 1992 American team? The other day they were playing against the USSR and it was like Muggsy Bogues and David Robinson out there on the floor. Oh, wow. I have not seen that per se. I have like been on on Twitter or something, NBA is streaming a finals game from like the nineties or something like that. And I'll watch old school games like that. And of course the last dance coming out, we're all like reminiscing on like the 97, 98 bulls. And mm-hmm. uh, I've watched some stuff like that. And I've really taken enjoyment of, or really enjoyed that, that style of basketball. Yeah. Yeah. I had never seen those old games and my husband is a basketball fan and, um, he watched the game when he was little, you know, he was born in like 1981. Steve Kerr was on the team as well, but he wasn't playing cause he was injured. Um, so interesting to see the differences and how they play the contact. There was not much contact, the short mm-hmm. shorts, the mm-hmm. passing, the three point shot was not as accurate as it is today. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, even you look at Jordan, like his three point shot wasn't great, but he scored 62 with like mainly two point shots. It's just a completely different game. It's crazy yeah. how it's changed. Yeah. This quarantine, you know, it's, they're busting out the old, the old video. So it's been kind of fun, but Nick, yeah, I really appreciate your time. This conversation has been great. It's the first time we've, you know, even seen each other. Um, yeah. and I really appreciate it. Very interesting story. And, uh, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for, I mean, listening. I mean, I guess it's mainly my story you kind of get to hear. And and, and uh, it was it was a pleasure to meet you. And I'm happy we could do this anytime, just catch up with someone, you know, going living in Spain, going through some a similar uh, situation. They say, you know, misery always loves company a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, so that's... thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and best of luck to your champ uh, partner, life partner you have. So good luck yeah. with that. And uh yeah, Your life is going to change dramatically, but it's going to be awesome. So yeah, it twins coming in, in a couple of weeks. My, uh, my life is for sure going to be flipped upside down, but definitely for the best way possible. So yeah, well stay healthy, take care and, uh, we'll be in touch. That was fun. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. I still can't get the image out of my head of six foot 10 Nick wearing a suit and walking around in little slippers that maybe cover half of his size 17 feet. Oh, the many memorable experiences one accumulates while playing overseas. Nick's had a great run, but like many professional athletes, his success has stemmed from his ability to put in the work, adapt, and overcome injuries. From the ninth grade B team to a professional vet who has just wrapped up his seventh year overseas. It's such a pleasure for me to be able to share these stories with all of you. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor by rating the show or leaving a comment. Your support means so very much. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening to another season in the books. I'm Leslie Knight, wishing you a safe and healthy week. Mm -hmm.